0: Welcome to The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey. We share interviews with healthcare executives, medical providers, and patient advocates.
1: Michael Sapienza of the Colorectal Cancer Alliance.
2: Having gone through cancer and having loved ones die from that cancer, you always need to put yourself in that patient's shoes.
0: Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson.
1: Welcome back to our podcast, The Patients Speak, how we accelerate their journey from diagnosis to wellness. I'm so happy today to have as my guest, Michael Sapienza of the Colorectal Cancer Alliance.
2: Great to be with you, Mark. Thank you.
1: First, I want to congratulate you on a terrific campaign, Lead from Behind, conceived by one of your board members, Brooks Bell, and so beautifully executed. By Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney.
2: We're just absolutely thrilled that Brooks came to us saying, as a survivor, I want to make this disease famous. You know, we've been talking for years Mm -hmm. at the Alliance about bringing more celebrities into the colon cancer space because it's one of those diseases where people just don't talk about it. You know, it's the second leading cause of cancer related deaths in the United States. And we need to change that. And I felt really strongly when Katie Kirk did her colonoscopy live on TV, it really made a difference, almost a 20% increase in people getting screened. And think this with Ryan and Rob, really, from the metrics we've seen, and the 1000s and 1000s of people that have reached out, about, hey, now I'm actually going to go get screen. I'm going to go get my colonoscopy. I'm going to go get a fit test. I'm going to go get a colon test. And no doubt, Mark, I think it will save lives for sure.
1: Well, indeed. In a moment, I want to drill down a little bit on that campaign and how it worked and what it's doing and some of the results you're seeing. But I think first, Michael, in the spirit and title of our podcast, The Patience, speak. Your alliance has a terrific model I saw of screen, care, and cure, these three areas that we need to address. Speak to our audience that might be made up of companies and researchers and clinicians, other patient advocates. What do we need to hear from the patients when it comes to colorectal cancer in these three areas?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I would just say from a screening perspective, I think about my mom. My mom died of this disease on Mother's Day in 2009, and she was 56 years old when she was screened. She had never been screened. And so if she had been screened at now 45, age 50 back then, she'd be alive. She would have seen me get married and have kids. And, you know, obviously I wouldn't be doing this probably. But, um, you know, I think patients in terms of getting screened, you know, it's a little hard because this is the disease that is the preventable cancer. you know? and so, um, you know, my mom felt really guilty about not being screened. She was a business busy businesswoman and had two thriving businesses, four children, and just didn't get around to it. And so, you know, I think from a patient perspective around screening, all I could say is before you are a patient, be proactive. Get screened. It literally will save your life. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I would say just from a care perspective, you know, having been a caregiver myself to my mom and now to, you know, tons of other, you know, people across the country and across the world, you know, people want two things, patience. One, they want to live and they want to live longer. Right. And two, they don't want to feel alone. And so what we do is we have multiple programs in our care pillar, which, number one, provides information about biomarkers, about surgery, about, you know, innovations in clinical trials. We also help with psychosocial pieces to make sure that, you know, if they are suffering from depression or anxiety or even just you know, temporary feelings of loneliness, et cetera, that we support them through that. We have a buddy program where we we matched about a thousand patients and caregivers last year, um, one-on-one. So if, you know, somebody that is a caregiver can talk to another caregiver that's going through it. We also have financial support and, you know, so many other, other things that for patients will help them live, help them live longer and help them not feel alone. And then from a cure perspective, you know, it's 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 really frustrating, I think, for patients all across, you know, the world, even within colon cancer. You know, two years ago or even a year ago, we had dozens of FDA approvals for leukemia and lymphomas, cancers of the, you know, leukemia and lymphoma, also with breast cancer. colon cancer, we had two two approvals. and, you know, there still really are very, very limited numbers of treatments, especially for patients that are metastatic, meaning that their disease has spread past the colon or past the rectum. So, you know, patients, you know, what they're saying is how do we raise more money? How do we get more young investigators into the field? How do we make it so, you know, we can have 22 new FDA approvals? You know, if you go to MD Anderson, you don't go to a breast cancer oncologist. You go to either a her2 BRCA oncologist. You don't go to a breast cancer. When you go to MD Anderson for colon cancer, you go to a colon cancer oncologist. And it's because we haven't discovered all of those biomarkers that potentially can save patients.
1: Yes, and in light of this uh, research gap, you know, some of it's a numbers game. Where are the patients? You know, and do they know about the trials? Can they access the trials? Do they meet the inclusion and exclusion criteria? I mean, our sponsor of this podcast, 83 Bar, is involved in this search. Where can we close that gap? You know, where can we really open more doors or, and, I guess, open more minds to participating yeah. in these trials?
2: Yeah, we're actually holding a clinical trial summit, actually November 10th here in Washington, D.C. Uh, the head of the Moonshot will be giving our keynote speech. And we have representatives from FDA, from industry, from NCI, from pharma, patients, caregivers, et cetera, really looking at the different areas in which we can improve in terms of clinical trial access and and obviously just uptake in general. So like, what is the marketing and messaging that needs to happen, right? So right now it's really like if if I go to Georgetown and they don't have a clinical trial for me, that doctor is a little getting on the phone or texting his friend at MSK or MD Anderson. And I'm sorry, but it's 2022 and that makes just no <laughs> sense, right? Makes no sense. And patients, you know, their perception often is this is a last ditch effort. This is something that if I'm, you know, I'm potentially going to be, you know, towards the end of life that I participate in, not something that I should be learning about when I'm first diagnosed. And that's where this medical what we call medical advocacy. So knowing what your biomarkers are, knowing what drugs actually work for them and moving that forward and then I would also just say in terms of the access piece is figuring out how do we increase trust with communities that have lower access to clinical trials so that they actually want to participate in them There's various ways of doing this, but, you know, oftentimes that that's just not, not the case. We're actually about to start a pilot study with Georgetown, actually entire MedStar system in, in DC, looking at all of those barriers to clinical trial participation and try to over time to reduce those barriers. And then the last thing i would just say about clinical trials in general we probably could talk about this all day is you know if you think about it in the community setting so i live in uh, it, it doesn't matter rural america somewhere and i'm going to a community oncologist that community oncologist is a generalist most likely and their practice etc they're not necessarily um incentivized at any level to get patients on clinical trials so that's another thing we're trying to really tackle you know, with some of the other advocacy groups, you know how to, how do we get people, and oncologists in rural America, even to just increase uptake of sharing information about clinical trials?
1: Yes. Well, I, I wanted to pause a moment on that trust issue uh, before we get too far, because I have heard this from other groups, from Hispanic communities and from African American communities, and even rural communities that you mentioned, that there is this. I don't know. I don't want to be a guinea pig or I don't want doctors practicing on me or I don't know if the drug is going to work. What if I get the placebo? You know, all these questions come up, but what listening have you had that sort of underscores this trust factor? And you mentioned there might be some ways to overcome it. I'm curious to pursue that
2: a little bit. First of all, there is no placebo in cancer clinical trials. I think that's one of the big myths that there is, at least in the vast majority of them. Yes, life. that's right. That, that's, just, that's just not ethical, right? The second thing I would say is I'm going to give two just anecdotal stories, or maybe one, depending on how much time we have. So there was a young woman, her name is Jacqueline Rush, and she was diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 19 years old because she had Lynch syndrome. And she, you know, was being treated in California and eventually, you know, unfortunately the cancer, you know, grew to be such that it was really taking over, uh, you know, just her ba- basic, basic bodily functions, et cetera, and was close to end of life. She passed away. Two months later, the immunotherapy drug Keytruda was approved for MSI high colorectal cancer. And if she had had that access, that trust in that potentially the, that trial, it would have, I mean, I could tell you right now, it would have saved her life. It would have cleared 100% of her cancer out of her body, because I've seen it. in another gentleman named Steven Estrada, who, you know, I met in 2014, it was literally like, almost dead when i saw him i mean he he was emaciated all, i mean just just horrible and and the cancer was all over his body i introduced him to uh Messer smith and chris Liu at the university of colorado and shoots cancer center and they immediately found out he had lynch syndrome and they got him on that got him on that clinical trial he is now five years no evidence of disease he is off the immunotherapy and he's he's absolutely thriving now they both had access. I will say this. Mm-hmm. Um, Jacqueline, a little bit, had some trust issues in the medical system, and I think you know one of, one of those pieces is how do we make sure that we are bringing in more doctors, whether they're Hispanic, whether they're people of color, that look like you or me or whomever is going to be participating in that clinical trial. And we've gotta think about like the consent piece of it, right? So oftentimes, even for screening, people feel like if they go in, and this is very, very specific too to the African American community, that they're signing away their life. Like, oh, if something happens, I'm just, it's okay, you know, like there's no liability. Well, that's a huge trust barrier. And so how do, we, how do we kind of hone in on just that one trust piece and potentially make that a, an easier, quote unquote, sell? I hate saying sell, but- No, but I understand
1: uh, what you mean. I mean, to communicate what the true parameters are of a study. You also mentioned a term that, it, that piqued my interest, medical advocacy. Now, certainly we want patients to be empowered. We want study participants to feel motivated and engaged. But is there a, a bigger role Can that be defined that there are medical advocacy specialists that sort of take the average person like you and I under the wing and uh, say, here's what's possible and kind of guide us through this maze of a system?
2: Yeah, Mark, we do this every day. So we have navigators all across the country that talk to patients and caregivers. And again, you only know what you know. And oftentimes you have 15 minutes with the famous oncologists of the world or at the, you know, the, the main centers and maybe even less in a community setting. And in that 15 minutes, they certainly are not going to show you, you know, their, their biomarker report, which Mm -hmm. is multiple pages long and has X's and threes and A's and C's. And it's a, it's a foreign language to people. And so you put your trust again into that physician that oncologist who's there with you potentially for 15 minutes that you hope you have trust in. But what we define as medical advocacy is that that patient or that caregiver truly understands what's in that report, whether it means the day that they're diagnosed or two years later when they potentially need a clinical trial. But as you, as you, I'm sure you know, you know sometimes if you start a certain treatment, it makes you ineligible for a clinical trial. So you know we do our very best. We're we're not, definitely not perfect, and we've really just you know started this. But we truly believe that at diagnosis, every patient should understand what their biomarkers are. And mm-hmm. I just it's it's hard because it's a it's a. It's a, it's a reimbursement issue, you know, it's a staffing shortage, it's, there's, you know, just a communication piece, Um, but in telling patients, that then allows them to ask the question instead of potentially relying on the physician.
1: Wow, invaluable. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'd like to circle back to the beginning then, and let's talk about the lead from behind campaign. I mean, this this uh, video and this whole initiative has really, as you mentioned before, brought some celebrity status, uh, and maybe that's helping get attention. what What are some of the numbers and feedback that you're getting?
2: Yeah, so we've had three point six billion media impressions, three hundred and eighty five outlets in the United States and actually all over the world cover it. And we had over twenty million views of the video, which for, a colon cancer video, I, I can tell you the number one viewed video, which was one that Katie Couric did for us, maybe three or four years ago, it had 100,000 views. So that just puts it in perspective, the vast number of people that not only heard the message right through these, you know, these outlets, but actually watched the video. And we saw like a uh, 25,000 thousand percent increase in, you know, uh, Google searches around colonoscopy and colon cancer and screening for colon cancer. So, yeah, I mean, and, and just the, the part that makes me the happiest. And I sent, um, you know, the head of, uh, Ryan Reynolds agency, maximum effort and the whole team, a text over the, I think it was last week or the weekend before it was just somebody that I saw randomly on social media just say, my friend went in today and said, Ryan Reynolds is the reason why I came in to get my colonoscopy. And, you know, Ryan said, this is the best text I've ever received in my life. Mm -hmm. Very Um, powerful. And it really, it really, for me too, it just gives me goosebumps because again, my mom was 56 and she never had it and it would have saved her life.
1: Yes. Well, when Rob said to Ryan, look, there's no way I could lose if my polyps are bigger if i have no polyps if i have more polyps uh, you know it, it would be a win win for him yeah but uh, they're both
2: they're both awesome individuals you know and and you know for them to do this it it just you know we 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 paid them no money they they did this they they did it on their their own you know, and obviously, you know, the, their show, Welcome to Wrexham, I don't know if anybody's seen it, but there actually is a gentleman in the show from the UK that had has bowel cancer in, in the show. But we'll, we're planning with maximum effort on doing multiple campaigns like this. Most likely won't be uh, Ryan, but, you know, hopefully other people that are representative of the African-American community, the Hispanic community, the rural community, and really just what it did is got people talking about the disease. So yes. it was a true, true success and we're thrilled and I'm just really excited to continue, continue this.
1: Well, I'd love to look under the hood of this a little bit. Sometimes, you know, I think back to the campaign with the California raisins and, you know, dancing, uh, heard it through the grapevine. I mean, to some extent, these things get lucky, but the star power and the celebrity power, I know that other patient advocacy groups, you know, in many disease categories, would say we really need to elevate. And so there's a a bucket challenge and there's all sorts of things to try to get potential patients or participants or those at risk engaged, you know, and look at the screen and hear the message. What lessons learned? I mean, I know it's a young campaign overall, but what lessons learned could you share?
2: Yeah, number one, I would say is there's no such thing as as like lightning in a bottle from a strategy perspective. The ALS... Ice Bucket Challenge was not planned, and it was a probably once in a lifetime thing for AL- ALS. This we did plan, but I would say that the genius of Ryan Reynolds and the genius of the folks that work at Maximum Effort and you know our support and partnership with them really made it a success. Like we waited until we thought that it was the right time and that there was this connection with Rob and Ryan and they're both their personalities and knew that it would i mean i guess we we hoped that it would break through but there there certainly were were bumps along the road in terms of in terms of getting us to that point you know i would say to just a partnership with maximum effort has been just absolutely wonderful i mean they have been thrilled to work with us their chief strategy officer mm-hmm. lost his mom to breast cancer at a very similar age to my mom their chief creative officer lost his dad to colon cancer. I mean, I kept reminding the team, both our team and Maximum Effort team, Brooks and um, others, Chrissy, who worked worked with us, just that like, why are we doing this? You know, because all day long, these agencies all across the world and these celebrities are, you know, they're making Deadpool movies or they're, you know, helping Ford or Kraft or pelotonia or whoever peloton you know but and and they do also do social good but this for them one of the things i would just say i i felt really strongly about is that i had to bring it back to the mission every single time and i really think that that's why it was successful because they believed in it so very very much you know and and you know ryan is not our spokesperson he won't be the colon cancer spokesperson he did this for his team Now we have other celebrities, we have other people that will potentially be talking about it. But the one thing, you know, Mark, I just want to say about Leave From Behind in general and the alliance is that these campaigns alone will not move the needle. The work that we do and then taking those people on the ground in different cities across the country and actually helping get them to that screening. We call it navigation, right? Navigating them to get that actual screening, providing funding through our health equity fund to actually get people in underserved communities to actually get screened. That is what's going to really, really move the needle. But you've got to raise the awareness first. It's like, you know, what we did with breast cancer and pink and all those communities. Like how, how did that happen? It happened with celebrity. It happened with large non-industry or we call for-profit brands like American Airlines and whatnot, putting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars behind the cause.
1: Yes. Well, and you mentioned this as a personal mission. And I go back to your own story and, and you had made the comment, maybe I wouldn't even be doing this. I looked down at the bottom of your LinkedIn profile. And I always love to scan down to the bottom of the resume. You're degreed in uh, professional and music. You're in the symphony, and now you're called to the nonprofit leadership work. In other words, this isn't something you went to nonprofit school and said, I think I'll run an organization.
2: No, I mean, I was really lucky. I went to the Eastman School of Music, Northwestern University, and then got my uh, graduate degree at Rice University in Houston. And I moved back to Chicago. I performed at the Chicago Symphony I Port to Chicago Civic Orchestra, Chicago Training Musicians. Um, I performed all over the world, in Paris and in Asia and all, all over. And then in 2006, I actually won a job in what what's called a training orchestra. It's called the New World Symphony, formerly conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas, who was the conductor of the London Philharmonic and the San Francisco Symphony. And actually, the first concert we had with him, I was performing principal trumpet on the Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 5, my mom had been diagnosed that day, but Mm -hmm. they didn't tell me, they didn't call me. They waited until I did that performance and called me the next morning and said, you know, Michael, we've hit a bump in the road. I mean, I'll just, I got just, I'm getting goosebumps still. And it's been, you know, what, however long 2006 was, you know, just, it was clearly, first of all, I was like, I didn't even know where your colon was at that point. And then second of all, we hung up, I went online and I looked it up of course, like people do what's the survival rate. And it hit me immediately. I was like, you know, and I started doing research on what are the largest advocacy organizations? Why is Susan G. Komen everywhere, which is amazing, incredible what they've been able to do. Why couldn't we do that in the colon cancer space? And, you know, throughout the next two years, my mom's journey, I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking just seeing the, you know, my mom's passing was, was truly hard, but the suffering of cancer patients, and it was just, it was debilitating. And I, I couldn't, help, but say, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would start a colon cancer foundation. Well, I didn't, unfortunately, <laughs> but now, you know, we are a 63, uh, member team and we're the largest colorectal cancer advocacy organization in the world. And so, you know, something in me, you know, allowed myself to be able to do that and to learn and to grow and surround myself with people that probably are smarter than me in, in, in different ways.
1: Well, your leadership is uh, commendable. And I couldn't help but wonder of the metaphor of a symphony to your network of people and navigators and funders and supporters and sponsors and so forth. What, where do you see that analogy
2: applying? I think two ways. So one is you were always taught as a musician to think outside the box. You you are not contained in a box, right? Your your artistry is supposed to speak from your soul, right? Whether you're a singer or a conductor or a trumpet player, right? So you are always taught to draw outside the lines and think creatively. And I think for me, that like allowed me, especially early on, to think, okay, how do we really bring this disease to front and center in the stage. And I do have to say, Mark, that like this Ryan Reynolds launch and Maximum Effort Leave From Behind launch is a culmination since 2006 of me being so frustrated and our entire community being so frustrated about the fact that this this disease was not quote unquote famous, right? And then the second analogy I would give is when you play in an orchestra or you perform an instrument, you have so many different jobs, right? You have a job of leading, especially if you're a trumpet player because you're sometimes really, really loud. You have a job of bringing your your section your your fellow trumpet trumpeteers together you have a job of working and listening to all the woodwinds all the string instruments and you have the job of following that conductor so it really is it's is like a perfect you're absolutely right it's like a perfect metaphor of you know we're all on a ship together and if it's sinking or it's not you know, we've got to be doing different things to make sure that those things go right. So, yeah, I mean, I, to, to say I haven't learned a ton and to say I don't make mistakes, I do all the time, but yeah, it's 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 truly been, been my honor.
1: Well, we're lucky to have you in the first chair of the CCA Symphony. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Michael, what a terrific conversation, and we're going to put all the links to the, the Lead from Behind campaign and links to your organization, but as you leave us here, give us a call to action, again, from the patient's point of view. If we're saying, listen to the patient's speak. So whether you're at a company, whether you're at a research site, whether you are an advocate yourself, what do we need to hear?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, the first thing I think of is, you know, you go to school for something and, you know, oncologists, surgeons, etc. no offense to them. I love many, 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 many of them, but they have great degrees and that brings them ego and experience etc the best thing i would say from a patient perspective or caregiver perspective is having gone through cancer and having loved ones die from that cancer you always need to put yourself in that patient's shoes now yes from a medical perspective you're the doctor but we really 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 need to be listening to patients whether it's quality of life, whether it's quality of care, whether it's cost of care and cost of care doesn't have to be money. I use the example of playing the trumpet. If I was a trumpeter and I was on, you know, oxyplatin, for example, it would cause neuropathy. I'd never be able to have my job again. So it's thinking beyond potentially what you learn in medical school and, and really trying to put yourself in that patient seat.
1: Uh, Thanks for that insight and uh, thanks for sharing all the experience that you have, your organization has, and the campaign. It's quite motivating. Thank you. My guest has been Michael Sapienza, the CEO of the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. I'm Mark Stenson. Come back again for our next episode. We'll continue our conversations with executives and innovators to see what we need to do to accelerate the patient's journey from diagnosis to wellness. This is The Patients Speak.
0: Thanks for listening to The Patient Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey with Mark Stinson, presented by 83 Bar, the patient activation company. Learn how 83 Bar listens, educates, and navigates patients at 83bar.com. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak.